Well, please do take your Bibles and join me in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, we'll be looking at verses 26 through 40 this morning. If you're using the blue ESV Bible and the seat backs in front of you, you can find our text on page 917. The title of the sermon is uh, just The Ethiopian Eunuch, and the keywords for our worshipers in training are marginalized, welcomed, and rejoicing. Well, as you're turning to Acts 8, I have good news for you, my friends. Jesus Christ welcomes the outsider. He welcomes the marginalized. He welcomes the one on the fringes. He welcomes the one that is hard to welcome. This is the point of the passage here in Acts chapter 8. But to see that clearly, we have to understand how we, how we have gotten here. right? If you've not been with us, it would be helpful to know that the book of Acts is all about how in the days following the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of God, the kingdom of God advanced over and against the kingdom of man. And God's kingdom advanced through the apostles' witness to Christ. Particularly their suffering witness, that they bore testimony to His death and resurrection and exaltation to the right hand of God, despite tremendous persecution. In the opening verses of Acts chapter 8, we actually see the transition begin from the Jerusalem-centric nature of the kingdom. They were in Jerusalem, witnessing to Christ. But then, at the stoning of Stephen and the persecution of the church that broke out at the hand, by the hands of the, uh, the Pharisee Saul and others, uh, the witness began to expand into other regions, particularly Judea and Samaria. And in the coming chapters, we're going to see how it continues to work out to the ends of the earth, as Jesus had told his apostles that it would. The beginning of Acts chapter 8, we see this transition beginning to take place. And the Samaritans in particular were of interest because they had Jewish and Gentile heritage. And they were apostates uh, according to Jewish understanding and they had set up a uh, a new temple a place to worship there's a long history that we 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 talked about a couple weeks ago when we looked at this and so now that the gospel had come to them that was stunning the church had been scattered after the stoning of Stephen and 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 Philip another one of the men appointed with Stephen in Acts chapter 6 to the the care for the physical needs of the church Uh, Philip had ended up in Samaria. He preached the gospel. And then we learned that the Samaritans actually believed the gospel. They were baptized. And they received the Spirit through the laying on of hands. And by prayer of the apostles, particularly Peter and John. In this section here in Acts, in Acts 8-10, through the gospel is advancing from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then in the rest of the book... We see the ends of the earth playing out. But in these chapters, we see these snapshots of four individuals brought into the covenant community during this time. 
Simon, a Samaritan sorcerer, we saw a couple weeks ago. Now we're looking at the Ethiopian eunuch, and then soon to come will be Saul, the Pharisee, the persecuting Pharisee, and then uh, Cornelius, the, the centurion. Now with the Samaritans, it's worth mentioning Simon again. Simon the sorcerer's conversion, it's messy. There's some debate about it, but at the end of the day, it, it places for us great importance on putting sin to death in our lives. So it deals very much with our understanding and appreciation of guilt in the Christian life and repentance. In our text today, with the, the, the Ethiopian eunuch, Luke describes this man's inclusion into the covenant community, which would be uh, at least just as shocking as Simon's inclusion. Now it's important to note before we read the passage and outline it, to note up front, Of course, it is an important feature of this passage that the man is an Ethiopian. But the fact that he is a eunuch is much more significant here. And we'll see that as we work through it. So if Simon helps us to see how the gospel overcomes sin and guilt, the inclusion of the eunuch here helps us to see how the gospel overcomes marginalization and shame. So let me read these verses. Uh, Chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Outline it, and then we'll get to work. Luke writes, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. And was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a lamb, sorry, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And they came up out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Three observations that I want to make with you this morning that I'd like you to see from this passage are these. And they're all, and they're all driving home this idea about God welcoming the outsider. So first, in verses 26 
through 29, and really at the very end in 39 and 40 as well, we see that God sovereignly works by His Spirit to advance His kingdom. Second, in verses 30 through 35, we see that God works, sorry, that God's word is essential in bringing about the promised expanse of the kingdom. And third, verses 36 through 38, we see that neither ethnicity nor social status are legitimate barriers to keep someone out of the kingdom of God. So God works by his spirit, God works by his word, and then ethnic and social status are not legitimate barriers to keep someone out of the kingdom of God. Those are our three main headings. First, God works sovereignly by his spirit in the advancing of his kingdom. Verses 26 through 29, we see this, as well as 39 and 40. This is the means that God works through his spirit to carry out the fulfillment of Jesus' commission in Acts 1, 8. To bear witness to him in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Three different times in this passage we see that the Lord directly communicates or acts upon Philip in this passage. In verse 26, the angel of the Lord tells Philip to go to Gaza. But then on the way down, when Philip sees the Ethiopian eunuch sitting in his chariot reading the prophet Isaiah, the Spirit tells Philip to go and join the chariot. And then after their encounter, the Spirit, it seems, somewhat perhaps miraculously whisked Philip away to Azotus. But even if there's not to be read into this some type of immediate transportation, it's still clear something is going on here, that he found himself here carried away by the Spirit. Now, I don't want to take away from Philip's obedience to the Lord in all of this text. But we must begin where the text does. God engages Philip. God leads and directs Philip. God's Spirit is the primary worker in all things that come to pass in this passage. God ordained the meeting between Philip and the eunuch. And it raises an important question for us sitting here this morning. Are you here by accident? Of course not. God has brought you here today for a very specific purpose. In some ways, though, that purpose may only be known directly to God Himself. But consider some of this. Perhaps some of us, for us being here today, we simply need to be refreshed as we rest from our labors and bask once more in the glory of the immortal God who dwells with His people. Maybe that is a key reason that you are here today. Maybe you're here today because you are hurting. You are confused. You are anxious and worried. Maybe you are sorrowful, fearful, in pain. Maybe something's wrong. Maybe you know what that something is. Maybe you don't know what that something is. But you're weary and you're hungry and you feel like you're at the end of the rope. Friend, 
You're not here by accident today. Or maybe you're here because you feel guilty. You're weighed down with sin. You're ashamed of this past week, this past month, or year, or decade. Maybe you've, you've sinned against God and you just don't know if there's hope to be found. You sinned against your neighbors, against whom you are called to love. Friend, if you're here this morning and you can barely lift your gaze from the floor, you're not here by accident. Maybe you're here and you're not sure that you need to be. Maybe you're not grateful to be here. You're not seeking the blessing of God. You're not seeking the comfort and wisdom of God. Maybe you strolled in here this morning angry at God. Dismissive of God. Maybe someone, a parent, dragged you here. You're not here by accident either. God has been working in our lives, all our lives, And perhaps for someone here today, he has been working in your life, your whole life, leading you to this moment. Every decision that you've made has brought you here, now. Every left turn you took, every time you were five minutes late or ten minutes early, every second helping at dinner, every time you've made yourself throw up after eating, every curse word, every attempt to find satisfaction against the blue light of a computer screen in the shade of night, every friendly gesture, every fight, every sneeze, every lie, every truth, everything has brought you here now. And for what? I pray, like this Ethiopian eunuch, that you wouldn't waste this moment, that we wouldn't waste this day We don't know how many days we will have. So, all of us need to ask the question as we come to a passage like this. Will I lay down my weapons? Will I seek refuge in the God who made me? In the God who sent his son to bear the guilt and punishment deserved by sinners like me? Will you be free from yourself? From the love of self and when you live unto God? Are you tired? Jesus is rest. Are you sick? He is health. Are you condemned? He is freedom and righteousness. And he's brought us here together. And he offers us himself. So let's take him, friends. God works by his spirit. And we're not here by accident. That's our first point. Secondly then, verses 35, 30 through 35, we see that God works through not just His Spirit, but His Word. It was the Word that was the primary means here, first and foremost, that we see thrust upon us that God used to bring this Ethiopian eunuch into the covenant community. It sharpens his understanding at least enough 
the eunuch was reading Isaiah. And Philip explains to him, beginning with that text in Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. He explains to him the good news about Jesus. That's what, right, most, you probably know this, gospel, right? The word gospel, that's what the gospel, that's what gospel means, good news. He tells him the gospel about Jesus. He didn't tell him to search for a sign from heaven or listen for a small, still voice or a massive thunderclap. He didn't tell him to wait for a liver shiver or consult his magic eight ball. He took him to God's word for understanding. You know, another, another place where we see the value and the significance of God's word in our lives is in, uh, also from the pen of Luke in Luke 16, 19 through 31. Jesus in there tells a, a story about a rich man, a man named Lazarus. And we learn that the, the rich man's brothers, who have Moses and the prophets, Jesus, well, in that case, it's Abraham who tells this man that they've got Moses and the prophets. If they don't listen to them, they're not going to believe even if a man rises from the dead. God's word is sufficient. And it's true, and it's trustworthy, and it tells us what we need to know to be saved, to live a life with God. It's a high premium placed upon God's Word, and and these texts, the one in Luke 16 and this one in Acts 8, they speak volumes about our Bibles, and in particular, our Old Testaments. From Isaiah, he told him the good news about Jesus Brothers and sisters, what confidence do you have in God's Word? What confidence do you have in the Old Testament? Of course, as New Testament Christians, the New Testament is indispensable to our faith. But so is the Old. We need to make full use of God's Word. There are parts of the Bible that are hard to understand. Parts of it even that are hard to read. But all of it is useful for us in learning to live upon God. And so this point is a very brief and quick one. But that's important for us to see. We must trust in God's Word as He uses that revelation to bring people into His kingdom. So those are the first two quick points. The third one here we're going to spend a bit more time on as well as some application. Because this is what Luke really wants us to see. Neither ethnicity, nor social status, nor anything else can keep us from the love of God. In verses 36 through 40. He's heard the good news. And so he wants to join the covenant community. Now, we're not given many details here about this Ethiopian eunuch. There's a lot about his identity that's left to history. We don't know. We know he's an Ethiopian, which means that he was either a Gentile proselyte or perhaps a Jewish exile living abroad. Since he's referred primarily as an Ethiopian, it seems likely that he may have been a Gentile proselyte. But Luke also 
seems to indicate that what happens in Acts 10 is really the first Gentile conversions here. And so there's some questions. But either way, this man was a, a devotee of Judaism. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. He had Isaiah and was reading him along the way. But whether he's born Jewish and was there in Ethiopia through the exile from um, the Babylonian invasion and, and further, or if he was just a Gentile proselyte, that's really not the focus here. The focus is the fact that this man is a eunuch that he had was deformed, either from birth or perhaps an accident or by choice even. And he was a high-ranking official in this queen's... She was in charge of her treasury. What's so significant about him being a eunuch, though? Under the old covenant system, eunuchs were not permitted full access into the life of the people of God. With commands in Genesis 1 to be fruitful and multiply, and the promise in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent... Life in Old Testament Israel revolved around childbearing. And so biological or surgical impotence carried tremendous stigma with them. And they even they kept men from serving as priests, said in Leviticus 21:20, or kept them from entering the assembly of the Lord at all. Deuteronomy 23:31. Forbid it. And so this man was an outsider by nearly every definition of the word. He was probably a Gentile, definitely a eunuch. Now, he was a follower of Yahweh, making his pilgrimage to Jerusalem, reading the scriptures, but he would not have been considered a part, a full part at least, of the covenant community of faith. And yet, what we see in this story is that God welcomes the outsider Those for whom the law previously made no provision, they are now welcomed in. He sees the water and he simply asks, what keeps me from being baptized? Philip's answer, nothing, friend. And so he baptizes him. And the man goes away rejoicing. Taking the gospel of Jesus with him back to Ethiopia. The, the message, therefore, is that no matter one's social or ethnic background, the good news of Jesus Christ is for all. The story of Simon's shocking and messy conversion in Acts 8, uh, 4 through 25, and the Ethiopian's perhaps more shocking inclusion into the covenant community, it teaches us that the gospel is a message of hope, not just for the well-positioned, but for those with their backs against the wall. The message is for Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, black and white, and every other ethnicity of the world. It's for government, government worker and civilian. It's for those who are healthy and for those who are sick. The gospel is for us all. The gospel is for each and every one of you here this morning. It is for me. It is for us all. This is the message. Christ for you. Will you have him? The story of the baptism and welcome of God to this Ethiopian eunuch 
into the new covenant community, to the covenant community of God, it intersects with your story in some powerful ways. Consider this with me. The message is that those who have been marginalized, particularly because of ethnicity or social status, but it really could be for any other reason. If you've been marginalized, through the message of the cross, we find a place of welcome and acceptance in the Lord Jesus and his body, his bride, his church. Despite the Ethiopian eunuch's outsiderness, he was welcomed into the family of God through faith. And so whether you feel marginalized by your parents, your siblings, your friends, your spouse, your children, your coworkers, your employers, your employees, society at large, the eunuch's baptism offers a great message of hope for you. He, like you, would have felt like he didn't belong. So whatever your story, you fit well within the narrative that we find running through the story of redemption. God welcomes the outsider. This theme can be traced all throughout Scripture. The Bible is full of stories of redemption and hope for those who have been marginalized. We read in Genesis 12 that God chose Abraham, a moon worshiper from Chaldea, to be the father of faith for his people. Consider Rahab in Joshua 2, or Ruth from the book named after her. If God would have mercy on Ruth, a Moabite, and Rahab, a prostitute, and he would use them to continue the messianic line, can God not show mercy to you as well, my friend? Consider David's kindness to Saul's grandson in 2 Samuel 9, when David welcomes Mephibosheth to his table, the crippled grandson of his archenemy. In that, we see God's willingness to welcome those who are simply made of the wrong stuff. I am made of the wrong stuff. And I suspect that some of you see the same things in yourselves. But consider this passage that the eunuch was reading in Acts 8. And here I want to I want to really tie it all together. It's possible that up to this point it's like pastor it sounds all good but I'm just not seeing it. Acts chapter 8. He's reading Isaiah 53 7 and 8. Isaiah 52 and 53 is perhaps the greatest Old Testament picture of the coming Messiah and the suffering that he would endure. And I like to I want to I want to turn there for a minute here. Look at Isaiah 53 and a couple places in Isaiah here. He says starting in verse 13 of 52, behold my servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And here's what the, the Ethiopian was reading. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this, his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made him his grave with the wicked with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong." Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So that is this image of this suffering servant, this Messiah who would come. But it's important that we understand where this is heading. What significance, further significance, Isaiah has for this eunuch. It's not just that the Messiah would suffer and redeem and ransom many people for himself. It's not just that this would take place in Israel. Look at the next few verses in 54. It says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and straighten, strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. It is the nations in mind here. What joy, perhaps, might have filled this man's heart as Philip, beginning with Isaiah 53, explained the good news of Jesus to him. Would he have told him about Isaiah 54? And even more than that, would he have told him about Isaiah 56? 3 through 5 says this Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. David Van Drunen is helpful here. He writes, Childbearing 
in the Old Testament was linked to the advent of salvation. The failure to bear a child meant the failure of God's redemptive promise to raise up a deliverer and to make Abraham's descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. In other words, the inability to have children, as this eunuch would endure, it robbed Israelites and others of contributing offspring to Abraham's descendants. And for Israelites, if their line died out, it robbed them of their uh, inheritance in the land. Inheritance in the land, as portioned out in Joshua, stood as a pledge of eternal life. And so this Ethiopian eunuch wasn't just not permitted to the priesthood, not just permitted to the assembly of the Lord. He was, in all respects, outside the pale of all of the hopes for Israelites, natural-born or proselytes. And yet, in Isaiah 53 and 54 and 56, God promises that He would redeem many sinners and that the barren would rejoice and the eunuch would be given a name better than sons and daughters. Perhaps it was that passage in Isaiah 56 that prompted the question, what then keeps me from being baptized? Having heard from Philip about the suffering servant and understanding that the laws which had previously stood against him, preventing him from coming into the full life of the family of God, understanding that they had been fulfilled in this servant, the eunuch understands that though he could not have been circumcised in his flesh, he was yet circumcised of heart. And so he was permitted entrance into the assembly of God's people under the new covenant. He understood that though he could not have been a priest under the old covenant, he now was a priest under the new. And so he underwent the ordinance of baptism. Which brings up two points for us of application that I want to make for us here in closing. The first, friends, is simple. Have you given your allegiance to Jesus Christ? What holds you back if not? What better thing is it that you hope to find? What hindrance lies in your way to embracing the good news of Jesus and more so, Embracing Jesus of the good news. And so if you don't know Christ, I commend Him to you. And if you have believed in Jesus, but you haven't followed Him obediently through professing that faith through baptism, I want to challenge you and ask yourself, why? Baptism is a great blessing to to all. It's a blessing to the one being baptized, and it's a blessing to those witnessing it. In baptism, we get to see a picture of the gospel as the grace of God is at work among us. 
Christianity, you know, is not a, it's not merely a personal, private matter. It is personal. But it's not really private. Our faith is to be lived out among people. With people. With the people of God. And so, baptism and church membership, it's a, a sign and a seal of the grace of God marking our public entrance into the community of faith. So I want to offer that for your consideration. But secondly here, remember this. God welcomes the outsider. This applies to you, and it applies to the person in your life or the people in your life that you just can't see coming to Jesus in faith. It just doesn't seem like it's in the cards for them. They're just too far gone, you might say. Simon the sorcerer and the Ethiopian eunuch teach us that the gospel indeed is the power of God unto salvation. Or really next week when we look at Acts 9, we'll see that in the life of this Pharisee, Saul. Remember, who was ravaging and breathing out murderous threats against the church. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. In Simon, we see the famous worker of iniquity. He had to learn the hard way that sin is vicious even after we trust in Christ. And for the high-ranking political official who had been an outcast from amongst churchgoers, he learned that the gospel overcomes our shame. So take this gospel, friends. Jesus Christ, dead for sinners and raised, victorious, exalted to the right hand of God, give it out like it's free. Because for us now, it is. Tell everybody you can. Tell your friends, your family, your co-workers, or introduce them to someone who can Bring them with you to church to hear of this Christ. Because what was it? Look at Simon. Look at the Ethiopian eunuch. What was it that brought them to faith? What was it that brought them to, the, to be included in to the, the covenant community people of God? Was it not the simple preaching of the gospel? Philip's public preaching in the first part of Acts 8, his private preaching or teaching, instruction in the last half of Acts 8. It was just telling them the good news about Jesus. That's what the Spirit uses. You know, I mentioned, uh, I think in Sunday school, most of you probably know, this past week I was up in Pennsylvania um, at the Banner of Truth conference and um, and it was a great, a great time, a great week, lots of preaching. And one of the things that was said that really stood out to me was this. Uh, and it was quoted from someone else. I tried to find where the quote was, so I don't know. But it was good. The gospel is the chariot upon which the Holy Spirit rides into our hearts. Right? The gospel is the chariot upon which the Holy Spirit rides into our hearts. So let us preach Christ. Let us then watch what the Spirit may be pleased to do in our midst here at Redeemer Baptist Church, in our own hearts, in our families, and in our community beyond these walls. 
Amen. Well,